for door number one? Well, I'll risk a little pile to see what's back there. But if I got a big pile, then I'm not sure I want to risk that. We're in a series called The Jesus Way, and we learned that when Jesus was on this earth, he invited people of all shapes and kinds to simply follow. And it was an invitation to relationship. He invited Matthew, who was a tax collector, who was kind of the lowest of the low in that culture, to follow, which showed us that the invitation is for anybody. He invited a guy named Peter, who was a fisherman, to just take some baby steps to follow. He invited a guy named Judas, and we learned that their agendas clashed. As it happens in all relationships, our agendas clash. did with Judas. And we learned that this is not an invitation to religion or to jump through some hoops. It's just an invitation to walk with and be in relationship with Jesus. Now, last week we talked about that as we follow, again, as in all relationships, there are times where there are competing agendas and somebody has to lay theirs down. And what we want to talk about this week is one such conflict that as Americans, I think, is something we all have to address. And that's why the title, The Jesus Way versus The American Way. In fact, there are some who may be here and you're kind of on the fence about the whole God thing, the church thing. I mean, you believe, but you're not sure if you want to kind of fully buy in. And this issue is often a major reason why. For others, if you've maybe been Christian for a while and, and uh, you know, it, this affects you too because the truth is when you were younger in your faith, you kind of had the attitude of like, you know, God, whatever you ask, I'm there, I'm all in. But now that you're older and you're wiser, you don't feel quite as passionate about uh, and sold out about God's stuff. What we're going to talk about maybe is it's what's kind of derailed you a little bit in your journey. You know, when I was eight years old, I heard a message about eternity. Uh, our associate pastor at our church preached on a Sunday night and talked about the fact that we were all sinners. And, and as eight, eight years old, even though my pile of sin wasn't too big yet, I kind of was aware, sure, I, I know I've made mistakes and failed. And he said, if you die in your sin, you'll spend eternity separated from God. But if you receive this free gift of forgiveness and grace, your sins are washed away and you can go to heaven. And that sounded like a great deal. And so I walked the aisle. I said, I surrender all. Everything I have is yours, God. But when you're eight years old, everything you have doesn't amount to much. I mean, I had some Legos and a few green army men and some Star Wars guys and a bike. Not a, uh, a Schwinn, not a Huffy, because I was cool. But uh, at 39 years old, it's a little bit of a different prospect. I don't have just a few toys anymore. I mean, I got a couple cars and a house and three kids and a yard and a couch and a couple TVs. And Jesus still says, follow me. But to surrender when you have nothing, that's easy. But to surrender when you have some stuff, that's hard. And that's that... That's that principle that was, uh, and let's make a deal, that the less you have, the easier it is to trade for the unknown. And likewise, the more you have, the harder it is to trade for the unknown. But here's a critical truth that I want to talk about today. One of the greatest barriers to following Jesus is the pursuit and management of wealth. But your wealth does not bother God. God doesn't care how big or little your pile is. That doesn't matter. Rather, what bothers God is anything that stands in the way of your willingness to follow. God is not against having stuff or having wealth, whether you have a little or a lot. It doesn't matter. God is not concerned or offended at your wealth. Rather, he's concerned with anything that keeps you from fully following. And every single one of us, because of where we live, we run the risk of letting the pursuit and management of wealth derail us. And you might think, well, this doesn't apply to me. I mean, I still don't have much more than a few army men and a bike. But you know what? If you live in the United States, you've been exposed to enough to make you want more. You've seen it, you, you've driven by it, you've parked next to it, you've seen it at the store. You've been around enough to know what's out there and every one of us is susceptible to allow the pursuit of more to pull us off track of fully following. Every one of us here runs the risk of allowing our pursuit and manage of, uh, management of wealth to become a barrier in our following of Christ. And it's always been the case. 
There's a story in the New Testament that's pretty familiar. Some of you will know it about a, uh, about a guy who Jesus asked him to follow. He's known as the rich young ruler. He extends the same invitation to him that he did to Matthew, to Luke, uh, to, uh, to Matthew and Peter and to Judas. Same invitation he extends to us. Follow me. This guy looked Jesus in the eye and he said, no, I'm not going to follow. And the reason was exactly the tension that you and I feel related to our stuff. If you have your Bible, let me invite you to turn to Mark chapter 10. If you don't, uh, take the insert out of the bulletin. You can track that way. We'll also put it on the screen. Mark 10, starting in verse 17. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Now, that's never happened to me. I've never been like a country market and somebody runs up and falls on their knees. But this was a, a culture where there was royalty, there were kings, and this was a sign of respect. Good teacher, he said, what must I do, key word, do to inherit eternal life? This guy is the rich young ruler. He's young, he's rich, he's driven, he's educated, he's type A, he's a ruler, he has power and authority. He's an achiever. He's a get things done kind of guy. And he said, you know what, I've tried to follow God, but I feel like I'm missing something. And this Jesus guy, I think he kind of knows what he's talking about. So maybe he can tell me what to do. Whatever he tells me to do, I'll do it. I want to have eternal life. I want to please God. I want to spend eternity with him. And so what can this guy tell me? What key, what answer, what hoop, what ritual, whatever, tell me and I'll do it. Verse 18, why do you call me good? Jesus kind of turns the corner a little bit, changes the subject. Jesus answered, no one is good except God alone. There's two Greek words for good. One is a word that means talented or capable. In other words, you're a good, capable teacher. But there's another word that means intrinsically or inherently good, like on the inside you're good. And this was often used to describe God himself or somebody who was sent from God. And therefore, this word was rarely used. And that's the word that's used. You're intrinsically and inherently good. Maybe you're from God, maybe you are God. And so Jesus pauses, this word catches his attention. This word is rarely used, it's interesting. Why would he do that? And so he responds, you know, no one's good but God alone. I mean, are you suggesting that I'm God or at least sent by God or from God? Is that what you're saying? But Jesus being Jesus senses something is amiss and he keys back on that word do. What must I do? And he realizes this guy wants religion, not a relationship. He wants to know what hoops he has to jump through. He wants to know what rituals he has to do. And he realizes this guy doesn't, isn't here because he senses that he needs a savior. This guy is here because he wants something else to do. So he says, just give me the to-do list. I will to-do my way into eternal life. I'm not after, after forgiveness. I'm not after a relationship. Rather, I'm looking for the list. What do I have to do? And so Jesus takes him back to the ultimate to-do list, the law, the Old Testament, where there are 613 to-dos and to-don'ts. And he starts rattling them off, starting with the Ten Commandments. He says, you know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, do not defraud, honor your father and mother, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Do, you know I need, do I need to give you all 613? And he knows where he's going. Teacher, he says, all these, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Look, Jesus, I know where you're going. I, I want you to know I've been a good person. I've kept the whole law. I mean, that's a bold statement. You mean you've never lied once or shaded the truth? You've always honored your parents. You've always honored the Sabbath. But you know what? Maybe he has. Perhaps he is a very devout guy, a very religious guy, but see, that's his problem. It's all about what he's doing and to do and what he hasn't done. It's not about his heart, and that breaks Jesus' heart. Verse 21, Jesus looked at him and loved him. That word loved means, can also be translated compassion. See, what Jesus heard and what Jesus saw, he said, you know what, this guy really wants eternal life, but he also really believes he's got it all together. 
He thinks that he's keeping the law perfectly. So he's so deceived. And Jesus' heart goes out to him. And he extends to him the same invitation that he extended to Matthew and to Peter and to Judas. This is a huge moment. You have to recognize how significant this moment is. This is the same invitation. And this guy is being invited to become the 13th disciple. Remember the fifth beetle on Saturday Night Live? This is the 13th disciple. Peter, Andrew, James, John, and, and Bob, or Ralph. We don't know his name, but whatever his name was. This guy could be the, that, is this invitation he gives to all of us. He has no idea what the stakes are. We've talked about that in this series, that Matthew had no idea the stakes when he walked away from that tax collecting booth, but he wrote a gospel and millions of people have come to know Christ through the gospel he wrote. Peter had no idea the stakes when he walked away from that boat but he became the foundation of the church and billions of people have come to know Christ through this thing called the church in the last 2,000 years. Judas had no idea what hung in the balance, did not know that he would eventually head to his, taking his own life, ending his life in hopelessness and despair. And this guy had no idea what hung in the balance. Verse, uh, the rest of verse 21. One thing you lack, Jesus said, go sell everything you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. There's the invitation. First, Jesus is so insightful. He reflects on the original question, what must I do to get eternal life? See, think about that. What must I do to get what I want? I want this thing to be under my control, so what can I do under my control so I can manage this whole thing? What can I do so that I can get what I want? I, 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 it's all about me. He's couching it in some religious terms, but it's all about him. And Jesus says, okay, here's, I, I see what's going on here. I see what your hindrance is, so here's what we're gonna do. We're gonna make it about everybody but you. Sell everything, give it all away, and you'll be in. Then come follow me. No hoops, no rules, no religion, no rituals, just relationship, just follow, just belong, just community. Be humble, be broken. Spend some time with me until you realize you don't have all the answers, you don't have all together. Just follow me. Verse 22, at this the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth or more like it had him. You know how much wealth he had? Just enough that it became too big to walk away from. His pile was too big to opt for door number one. His possessions hindered him and held him back from following from the opportunity of a lifetime. I mean, this is God in human flesh asking him to follow, and he's looking him in the eye and saying, no, I can't. Because all the stuff I have, I, I can't walk away. You know, all that stuff that you've given me, by the way, I can't walk away. You know, all that stuff that I can't take with me when I die, I, I'm not, I can't walk away from that. So he says no. And he misses the opportunity that all of history could have known his name. Who knows what impact he could have had in this world. He has no idea what hung in the balance, and he never would. Verse 23, Jesus looked around and says to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Why? Because one of the greatest barriers to following Jesus is the pursuit and management of wealth. But your wealth does not bother God. Rather, what bothers him is anything that stands in the way of your willingness to follow. And that guy might have said, you know, Jesus, if, you, if I'd run into you back, you know, 20 years ago when I didn't have much, it would have been easy to follow. But now I've got a lot. This is a big risk. The stakes are high. Jesus says, you have no idea how high the stakes are. First of all, let's be honest. That story scares us, doesn't it? I mean, guys, that's a scary story. I mean, we just get tense already. Like, where's this going? Let me be really clear right off the bat. This is the one guy that we know of, the only guy that we know of that Jesus ever asked to do this. Only guy that we know of. You are not required to sell everything to follow Jesus. So just take a deep breath, unclench your fists, relax, sit back. Jesus is not asking us to do this, but what he has asked to do is think in terms of everything in my life. My life belongs to God. But this is so contrary to the American way where we're all about consuming more, 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 newer, shiner, faster. 
I want to get mine. I get to look out for number one, grab the gusto. So even though Jesus doesn't ask us to give up everything and follow, we still too often choose wealth, the pursuit and management of wealth, practically day to day over following. We're very willing to follow when we don't have very much. I mean, if I lose my job, God, step in. My marriage is in trouble. My kids are sick. You know, my loved one is dying. God, please step in because I don't have much there. But when things are good and comfortable and I have a lot, it's much harder. As an American, I think the pursuit and management of wealth is probably the main thing that gets in the way of our following. Not being a good person, not a church person, not a religious person. The rich young ruler was all those things. But rather, the adventure of following. And because the more you have, and Americans, we have a lot, the more difficult it is to risk it, to, to opt for door number one and to follow. A couple observations I want to make. First of all, when we choose wealth over following, number one, our relationships suffer. See, following Jesus is about loving God, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving people, love your neighbor as yourself. But it's really hard to love people when we choose wealth over following. See, if I choose wealth over following, that means I might sacrifice my family for career. That's not loving. You know, if I choose wealth over following, it's easy to ignore the poor or those in Africa or Haiti that have needs, but that's not very loving. It's easy to be part of a community, but, but not really be generous, but that's not loving. Jesus is about love, so when we choose wealth over following, our relationships suffer. Number two, when we choose wealth over following, our serving suffers. Because the best of our time and our talents and our treasures and our thinking gets invested in our career and our wealth rather than serving others. Now, let me just say, I know you need a job. That's okay. God wants you to have a job, and he wants you to do it well with excellence. That honors him. In fact, after Easter, we're going to, talk, uh, we're going to do a series called The Office where we're going to talk about our work. And God says, when you work, you need to know that you're not working for the state or your company or your boss. You're actually working for him. So do your job well. But it's about perspective. The more you have, just by nature, the more you think about it and the more you worry about it. If you have a house, you think about that. If you have cars, you worry about that. If you've got a boat, you worry about that and think about it. If you've got college funds or retirement, the more you have, the more you think about it and worry about it. Plus, the more you have, the more options you have. In fact, I live in church world a lot. I'll just say I'm a pastor. My dad's a pastor. I have a sister and brother-in-law. They're both pastors. I have two male cousins. They're both pastors. I have two male uncles. They're both pastors. I had two roommates in college, and they're both pastors. And I have more pastors in my world than, than anybody could ever want to know. It's kind of a miserable life, but that's, that's the way my life is. So my world is kind of church world, and I talk to pastors all the time, and you know what they say? They say, you know what, the heroes of the churches are single moms, fixed income retirees that serve and sacrifice. They say this unequivocally, church after church, the wealthier and more successful people are, the less they serve. Why is that? Because we've got more options. We can go to the lake, we can get our kids in more stuff, we can travel more, we can have season tickets to the ball game, we can have Harleys and drive around, we can go play golf, and there's nothing wrong with any of those things at all. Absolutely not. It just takes more time. The more you have, the more options you have, and if, the more if you're not careful, the more our wealth gets in the way of serving, and followers serve. Third thing, when we choose wealth over following is our giving suffers. It seems like it should be the opposite, in fact, many of us have had those times when we didn't have much and we thought like, you know, if I could just win the lottery, if I could just hit it big in business, man, I would be so generous. I would give so much away to help my church and I would help people in Africa and I would see a family that was in need at Christmas and I would help them and buy presents, all those things. And yet study after study after study after study show that the more your income goes up, the less percentage-wise that you give. In fact, the top 10% of income earners in the United States give on average one half of 1%. I mean, it may seem like a big pile. Like if you, you know, you make $100 million a year, 
One half of 1% is $500,000. That seems like a a lot to give away, but percentage-wise, it's so much less than the average American. Why? Because it's so easy to get distracted by the pursuit and management of wealth. We lose track of what it means to really be generous. The fourth thing that happens when we choose wealth over following is it's hard to live with an eternal perspective. See, when life on this earth is pretty easy and pretty comfortable, we don't think about heaven that much. But you go someplace like Mathari Valley in Kenya, one of the poorest slums in the whole world, where there's poverty and disease and suffering and pain and AIDS and drug addiction and prostitution and the life expectancy is like 46. Their only hope is eternity. For us, our lives are easy and comfortable. We just don't think about it that much. In fact, there are times, if we're honest, some of us are like, we kind of like, you know, if like God, if the end is coming, can you hold off just a little bit? Because like I'm single, I'm engaged, and I'm getting married in six months, and I'd like to just at least be married a little bit. So just, God, if you could hold off. God, you know, I'm going to retire in six months. I've worked hard my whole life, and I just want to enjoy some time, play golf, do the empty nesting thing. See, it's, you know, it's easy when we're comfortable not to think about heaven. When you don't have anything, you can't wait for heaven. But when you have a lot, there's no urgency. So it's hard to live with an eternal perspective. And I'm right there with you. I mean, it's not like I got all this figured out. I mean, I'm an American. I live in this culture too. I mean, it's hard. I think about that all the time as a pastor of this church. I mean, there's things that we'd like to experiment and change and think about. And, you know, we're, we were a church that's passionate about trying to reach more people and serve more people. We've talked about opening up, like, different campuses and other towns that have, like, live worship and then the sermon will be on video. That's kind of a new trend that's happening in churches and different initiatives we'd like to try. And how can we continue to get younger as a congregation because people like me are getting old, you know, going to be 40 this year. And we think about all these things and we think, what if these things don't work? I mean, what if people leave? What if it creates problems? I mean, when I started and we had 400 people in a little building on eight acres on Cokie Mill, it was one thing to take a risk. But when we have 1,200 people in a big building and 60 acres and staff with families and people and pressures and the big investments we've made in Ghana and Haiti and Kenya, I mean, they're depending on us. And the presence we have in the city at Hazel Dell and Contact Ministry, they're depending on us. It's much harder to follow. I mean, it's scary to take those risks. And yet I don't want to lose that edge. So let's get practical. How do we overcome the pull of wealth that is inevitable because of where we live? How do we say no to the American way and yes to Jesus' way? Let me get really practical four things really quickly and we'll close. Number one, accept what God says about wealth. What does God say about wealth? He basically says it's all his. Psalm 24.1 says the earth is the Lord and everything in it. That's everything. Biblical idea about wealth is it's all God's. We're just stewards. We're just managers. It's on loan to us. We're supposed to steward and manage whatever pile God has given us, whether it's big or little. And we're supposed to manage it, number one, for our enjoyment. Absolutely, God says, enjoy what I've given you. That's great. Take vacations. Enjoy your family. That's awesome. But also, manage it and steward it to advance God's kingdom and care for the poor. It's all his. We're just managing it. So Jesus is asking the rich young ruler to let go of something that wasn't even his anyway. It should have been easy to let it go, whether it's a little or not. It's all God's. The second thing we can do to overcome the pull of wealth is establish the priority. This sounds redundant. Let me explain. Establish the priority of priority percentage giving. Here's what that means. First of all, the priority. Do do we give God the first, the the very first, the first fruits, it's called in the Old Testament. In, In other words, before I spend everything on Blake's kingdom, do I invest in God's kingdom? Is the first check I write every month. And just, I'm to speak for myself, it's too easy to get to the end of the month and you just have leftovers. I mean, you and I both know how it goes. There's always something new or more to spend or buy. 
And so if we just wait to the end, there's not much left. So is it a priority? Is it the first thing that goes every month? Second of all, percentage. Do we establish a percentage? The Bible teaches a baseline of a tithe, 10%. You can give more if you want, that's great, and maybe that's something we have to work toward, but we have this baseline. In fact, we talk about all the time the 10-10-80 principle. If you give God the first 10% and you give yourself 10% to save and you live on 80%, you'll never go wrong financially. And 10%, I mean, the more you have, that sounds like a lot. I mean, if you've got a big pile, 10% sounds like a big deal, but that's why it's a percentage because it's the same percentage for everybody, not equal gifts but equal sacrifice. Now, take a deep breath. I know it makes you nervous when the preacher starts talking about money. I know how that goes. I've heard enough bad stories. I've experienced some myself. I, I know some of you may have gotten burned in some previous church experiences let me just say this, and I see this every time I talk about this, which isn't very often. So if you're just here, this is your first time, you're just lucky. But I don't talk about this that often. But I say this every time I talk about it. If you're here and you don't trust me or you think I'm trying to get in your wallet or get your money, or this church is trying to get something from you, if you don't trust this church, that's okay. I understand. I'm a skeptic too. But if you're here and you don't trust me or you don't trust this church, then give your 10% someplace else open the phone book, randomly pick a church. I don't care where it goes. I mean, I personally think hope is, about, is a special place. The investments we're making in Africa and locally and the ministry that we're involved in here locally is unique. But if that's the barrier, if I, you don't trust me or our church is the barrier, then, then give it someplace else because I want you to be free to follow and I want you to break the pull that it has on you. The third way we overcome the pull of wealth is set aside time to serve. If you're too busy to serve, it means you have a lot of options. And if you have a lot of options, it means from a global perspective, you're rich. Yet Jesus said as he washed his disciples' feet, the fundamental attribute of a Christ follower is a servant. You may be the nicest person in the church, but if you're not serving, you're not following. And I know you're busy. We're all busy. We, I got a job. I got kids. I've got, they're involved in sports and homework and all that stuff. I know how it goes. That's why we have to de- be disciplined and set a little bit aside every week. Otherwise, again, God just gets our leftovers. And in fact, if your time is very limited, then be strategic. Invest your time in the ways that you're going to get the biggest impact, the greatest bang for your serving buck. Let me give you three suggestions. Number one, Harvest Land, our children's ministry. Did you know 75% of the people who come to know Christ do so before the age of 18 and the bulk of those before 14? If you only have a little bit of time, then do it where you can get the greatest eternal impact for your serving time, serve kids. And you may not be a kid person, but you don't have to actually serve the kids directly. You can serve behind the scenes administratively. You can serve in the technical aspect. There's lots of different ways to serve. Number two, you can serve in tech ministries. Those people back there in the tech booth, they give up one weekend a month to serve to help create this environment so that the music and the dramas and the video and the message is, is easy to hear and understand and receptive. And you may be a gadget person or a computer person and we'll train you to learn what you need to know. But that's a huge way to, to serve one, week, one weekend a month that can have eternal consequences to maximize your investing, your, uh, your serving dollar. The third thing you can do, and this may sound like a strange thing to include, but it's the landscaping ministry. Most of our grounds are cared for by volunteers, which is awesome. And you may be a groundskeeping kind of person, or maybe you just, you know, you can work. You, just, you know, you can work outside, and it's not a big deal. But here's why that's impactful, because it impacts not only people who come into this building, but people who drive by. And I believe very strongly when people drive by a church facility and they say, number one, that's a church that cares for creation, the environment, that's an important value to them. Number two, 
they actually care for beauty. They're trying to create a thing of beauty that makes the community more beautiful. That's impactful. And number three, if they're, if they're spending a lot of time managing the details to make sure things are beautiful and well cared for, that means that they actually take seriously what they're doing. That means they value what they're doing. And so maybe sometime when God's working in my life, that's the kind of place I'm going to go in and check out what God's all about. I think you have no idea the impact of uh, what the landscaping ministry can be. There's three opportunities for you to serve. And I encourage you, if you're not serving, just to flip the bulletin over, look for Beth Funk's email and email her and just say, I'm ready to jump in in one of those areas and serve. How can we overcome the pull of wealth? Number one, accept what God says about wealth. Number two, establish the priority of priority percentage giving. Number three, set aside time to serve. And last, number four, pursue authentic accountability regarding your wealth. You just have to be living in community to such a degree where others can help you monitor your heart when it comes to the pursuit and management of wealth. Jesus had this little phrase he used to say. He said it all the time. I'll give you one example. It's in Mark 4, 19, but he said it several places. The deceitfulness of wealth. It's so easy to be deceived and think, this is not my problem. I got this under control. Other people have a problem with this, but it's not me. Did you know, I've mentioned this before, Gallup did a survey recently, one of those polls where he interviews thousands of people on the street, and he asked people, do you think the American culture is a greedy culture? And like 87% of people said America is a greedy culture. Then he asked them the second question, are you greedy? Like 17% of people thought they were greedy. Terribly greedy culture, not me though. Uh, it's other people, they're the greedy people. You know what that is? That's the deceitfulness of wealth. And without knowing it and without being aware of it, we don't fully follow because we get distracted by the pursuit and management of wealth. And it seems normal and right because that's the flow of our culture. It's the American way, but it's not the Jesus way. Our wealth is not the problem. God doesn't care if you got a lot of wealth or a little bit, that doesn't matter to him. The problem is anything that stands in the way of following Jesus. So here's the challenge. Will we take steps to overcome the pull of wealth and thereby practically say yes to Jesus' invitation to follow me? Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, uh, though the story of the rich young ruler is a sad one because he never realizes uh, what could have been and we have no idea what hung in the balance. We have no idea what his life could have been. In the same way, I'm grateful for that story because it illustrates something that I think is so prevalent for every single person that grows up in this culture, because it really is the American way. I mean, we live in the richest nation on the planet Earth, maybe the richest nation that's ever been. From a global perspective, pretty much everybody in this room is, is rich. And the flow of our culture is all about more, more, consume, consume, newer, faster, shinier, get, get, get. And we can forget that that's actually not the way we need to live just because it's the american way doesn't mean it's jesus way and we can get so distracted by that we can miss out on the opportunity of a lifetime we need to realize that just like let's make a deal that the bigger that pile gets the harder it is to take a risk and opt for door number one and follow and yet behind that door is the adventure of a lifetime of following you being in relationship with you give us the courage to examine our hearts and not be to not be uh deceived by wealth, the deceitfulness of wealth. Give us the courage to just practically look at the steps that how do we overcome the pull of wealth and start to practically do those things so we can break the hold of the American way in our life and be free to follow your way. We thank you for your grace and love. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.
a clinch fist I try to hold my own life in my own hand Frustration sets in but I have this Failure is the one thing that I just can't stand And oh, you remind me Taking care of me has never been in my job description And oh, and now I'm finding you want to fix it all You're just waiting for permission Hey, giving up on letting go of everything that I've held on to Giving up on letting go all the things that I've let hold me for so long But I know, I know I need to give you full control Help me give up and let go Help me let go I want to trust you with my own heart Not lean on what I think I understand And even when I can't see Jesus help me still to believe You're unveiling and unveiling And oh, sometimes the old me creeps back in this morning. Uh, if I could invite you just one thing to do me a favor real quick. If you could take the little blue card out of your bulletin um, at Hope, we are constantly trying to evaluate uh, are we effective at uh, exposing the Jesus way, the invitation to follow to as many people as possible. Uh, a little over 10 years ago, in November of 1999, we started the Saturday service and then when we were in another facility, we actually added a fourth service, a third Sunday service. We moved here, we went back to three. We were just kind of uh, wanting to get some feedback. Are those, uh, are they working? What are the times that are most effective in reaching people? Plus, we've also noticed that in this service, periodically we have 
kind of in a spike where it becomes awkwardly full. And so we're just evaluating some things about times, whether the best times to reach the most people. And so if you wouldn't mind just taking like two minutes and fill this out. Number one, which service you normally attend? Number two, how do you feel if Hope would eliminate